Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the quest for justice at Grenfell Tower, scene of the UK's deadliest residential fire since World War II. With the second phase of the public inquiry ongoing, I'll be asking what lessons we've already learned, not just about the fire itself, but more broadly, what it tells us about life in the UK today. I'm joined by a local resident turned campaigner who witnessed the blaze. It was just complete chaos. I mean, we stayed till about 7.30 in the morning. But I remember clearly thinking on that night, you know, this hasn't happened in a vacuum. This tells me everything that is wrong with the society that we live in. I'm standing in one of the richest boroughs in Britain, in one of the richest countries in the world. And you never forget that scene. You never forget that night. For days afterwards, you wake up and you just think, did that really happen? It's surreal. Nobody should have to live through that. I'll also be talking to a dramatist, putting the public inquiry centre stage. It is abundantly clear that this cost-cutting, so-called value engineering, led to this terrible, terrible disaster. And the evidence makes it quite clear that it was completely avoidable. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which did so much to expose government sleaze long before it became fashionable in the mainstream press. Byline Times is a great read and making the podcast keeps me off the street. So win-win all round, I'd say. Go on, do the decent thing. Head over to bylinetimes.com for details on how to subscribe. It would make a great Christmas present as well. More details at bylinetimes.com. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Fire Brigade. Yeah, hello. Hi, in the fire flat 16 Greenfield Tower. Sorry, your fire where? Flat 16 Greenfield Tower. In the fridge. Right, hang on. Flat 16 Greenfield Tower. Flat 16, and what's the postcode? W111TG. W111TG. Tango. Yeah, but can you quit, please? Yeah, would you just, I have to get the address, okay, Glen. Flat 16, Greenfield Park, W111TG. The fire brigade are on their way. Are you outside? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm outside. Yeah, well, the fire engines are on their way. Just tell me how many floors you've got there. It's, it's the fourth floor. Right, okay. Quick, 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 quick. They're on their it's way burning. already. Yes, I know it's burning, but they are on their way. You've only just called, as long as you're okay. Yeah? Okay. That was the 999 call just before 1am on June the 14th, 2017, that alerted emergency services to a fire at Grenfell Tower, a 24-storey high-rise in West London. A fridge freezer on the fourth floor had malfunctioned, and in the hours that followed, the block became engulfed by flames. 72 people lost their lives. At the end of the first phase of the public inquiry in 2019, the chairman, Sir Martin Moore Bick, a retired judge, ruled that the fire was accelerated by a form of plastic-filled aluminium cladding that had been banned from use in tower blocks in other parts of the world. This ACM cladding had been attached to Grenfell during renovations which finished the year before. I find that the principal reason why the fire developed so fiercely was the presence of aluminium composite rain screen panels 
containing a polyethylene core, which is highly combustible. Sir Martin also said that the refurbishment of Grenfell breached building rules. I find that following the refurbishment, the external walls of the building did not comply with the building regulations because they did not adequately resist the spread of fire over them. On the contrary, they promoted it. These were strong conclusions, but the police are waiting until the end of phase two of the inquiry, which is due to conclude next year, before bringing criminal prosecutions, angering residents who lost family members who fear they may be cheated of justice. In the meantime, Richard Norton Taylor has turned the key events of phase one into a drama called Value Engineering Scenes from the Grenfell Inquiry, which has played venues such as the Tabernacle Theatre in London, and Birmingham Rep. Richard did similar work with the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry. I brought him together with Yvette Williams, lead campaigner on Justice for Grenfell. She has a long history of community activism, including work with the Mangrove Community Association in West London. She lives locally to Grenfell and witnessed the fire firsthand. So I was called to the fire at about half past one in the morning solely because a friend of mine lives in one of the walkways underneath the tower who just said to me, the tower's on fire, they'd been evacuated, can I come and pick her up? When I turned in the main thoroughfare, the fire was possibly on about the sixth floor. We had had fires in the area before that had been fine, no loss of life. I took my daughter with me, who was 10 at the time, but as we got closer to the tower and located our friend, you could just see things dropping off the building. There was a real sense of panic on the ground. You, it, it, it was just climbing. It was just chaos. You can see people at the windows. You are shouting for them to get out. There are people on their phones calling into the building. So it was just complete chaos. I mean, we stayed till about 7.30 in the morning. But I remember clearly thinking on that night, you know, this hasn't happened in a vacuum. This tells me everything that is wrong with the society that we live in. I'm standing in one of the richest boroughs in Britain, in one of the richest countries in the world. And you never forget that scene. You never forget that night. For days afterwards, you wake up and you just think, did that really happen? It's surreal. Nobody should have to live through that. The other thing that many people don't realise is that the building burnt for 60 hours. So the community is walking around. And we were finding cladding all over the place as the wind kind of swept it. You know, as far away as a mile away. So, yeah, just the horror never, the horror never leaves you. The other kind of bizarre thing that happened on is no one came to help. So you had the emergency services there. But um, it was the community that then got together, opened relief centres. You know, the great British public then start sending in, you know, donations, clothes, nappies. There are people feeding people. And you did, I always say at the day, we just felt like we were running the Republic of Labrook Grove because literally no one came 
to help? No one from any authoritative kind of figure. So we didn't see the local council. We didn't see people like the Red Cross. The first people I saw come to aid was a group of young Muslim men. The fire happened during Ramadan and they were on their way to mosque and they came back and bought water. You say your instinct was that it told you everything that is wrong with the society that we live in. But initially, this was reported as a tragedy, which unquestionably it is. When did it first become apparent to you that it wasn't just a tragedy, but that it was a scandal? That fire didn't happen in a vacuum. Okay, I was aware of what was happening at Grenfell Tower in terms of the refurbishment and the way that the residents were being vilified. There were other things happening in the area. There was a reclaim of community assets. There was a group set up called Westway 23 that looked at the 23 acres of land that that runs under the Westway, the A40. There was a drive to close down our public library. There was selling off of public assets to a private school. You know, there was um, one of the local nurseries that had been here since the 70s was suddenly shut down. So there were a lot of things. There was gentrification happening, willful neglect of properties where they'd just run your property down so badly that in the end they'd say to you, you know, we can't repair it. So why don't you move to Milton Keynes? So splitting up and cleansing of the community. So there were lots of things in the north of the borough where we were treated very differently to the south of the borough that was telling us all was not well. The other crucial thing is that five days before the fire, Kensington votes in its first ever Labour MP, and she only gets in by 20 votes. But that was a clear indicator that all was not well in Kensington. Kensington was a Tory safe seat for decades. So things were moving, you know, the community was organising and just saying enough is enough. Richard, you've dramatised other inquiries, including Stephen Lawrence and the Arms to Iraq inquiry. Interesting here, Yvette, talking there about the financial pressures that were at play around Grenfell Tower at the time of the fire. And the title of this dramatisation of an inquiry is value engineering. Just tell me more about that. Well, we use the title value engineering. The purpose, of course, value engineering in theory is meant to mean get the best value for money without compromising security or safety. And of course, that is not what happened here in the Grenville Tower. And the evidence is, and we took a lot of the evidence because it at the time we were collecting the evidence because of COVID and so on was last year when companies were the main witnesses. They made it abundantly clear that they were cost-cutting. They blamed everybody else. They won't pass the buck to another person. But the key thing is cost-cutting and bagging money, frauding fellow companies and indeed the borough. The borough and the tenants management organisation, which was effectively the landlord of Grenfell Tower, didn't mind about that. And they were also blaming austerity, of course, and deregulation. But the theme running through it is 
basically getting as many bucks as they could and do this thing as cheaply as possible with the results that we've seen. And deviling into this, and quite a lot of devils in the detail. I mean, you know, you've got a first-class honours degree in cladding, I say sometimes, because you've got to look at some of the technical things. Of course, they try to cover their tracks by saying it's all terribly complicated. But it was a disaster. It's a disaster waiting to happen, to use a cliche. But it's just very, very true in this tragic, tragic case. And it was completely avoidable. And in answer to your question, the value engineering, we say it in a sort of a way that uh, is the main attack on them. The traditionally, the construction industry has used that phrase, but here they misused it and they pocketed a lot of money, which they shouldn't have done. And the cladding is at the heart of this, isn't it? The the desire to maximise profit, which leads to cladding being attached to the walls of Grenfell Tower, which was not the best cladding from a safety point of view, but which was the best cladding from the company's profit point of view. It was a cheaper cladding. The cladding is at the heart of it, and that's why even now the legacy of Grenville is tremendous. I mean, many, many thousands of tenants and, and leaseholders are flats around the Britain. Uh, affected by this, you know, and the government's in serious trouble about this. Michael Goat, the new minister, trying to do something about it, saying that they shouldn't have to pay all this. The cladding is crucial because they opted for a cheaper cladding, that is, a composite material, aluminium rather than zinc, but more expensive cladding. And they knew, or they should have known, and some of the companies didn't know, and some of them didn't because they were kept almost willfully ignorant of fires that had been caused by similar cladding around the world, notably in the Middle East, Dubai, and so on. But also a very big fire two years earlier, 2009, Lacknell House in Camberwell, South London. Very similar results. The companies involved in Grenfell, and include a lot of the borough officials, hadn't even read the coroner's recommendations after Lacknell House fire, which had very similar characteristics. I mean, the more I deviled into this, reading and, and listening to the evidence, and then re- sometimes afterward in transcript form on the website, it had become increasingly clear that this is outrageous passing the buck, and fraud was involved, a kind of corruption for a British kind of corruption, not overtly, but clearly, and you saw emails between the other, the chumocracy, let's get this company involved, we know of someone who worked with me before, all that kind of stuff. In that sense, I think there's an allegory, as you suggested, of what is wrong with certain elements of British society and sort of subcultures. There are so many lessons to be learned, it, it really was, and I have to say this, I was surprised it may be in a dramatic event and a disaster, but are people going to go to the theatre? Are people going to sit down for almost three hours or two and a half hours? And they have been, and, and the reviews, I must say, have been quite tremendously supported, including by, dare I say, the right-wing press like The Spectator. The Telegraph gave it five stars. The theatre is, for me, quite a good platform to explain things rather than just you know a few hundred words in a newspaper for one day. I think a lot of is explained in this piece we did of the theatre, and people are learning lessons who didn't know that basically what happened in the fire. And that, I think, is what we try and uh, help people to understand that. Yvette, one of the many elements of this tragedy that causes real concern is that two women who campaigned for safety improvements as part of their role in the, the Grenfell Action Group. This was Mariam Elguari and Nadia Shukare, both died in the fire. They were actually threatened with legal action for raising complaints about the, the block safety. They were complaining mainly about the refurbishments. The block had originally been earmarked for demolition. They then said, okay, well, you know, we'll just do it up. We know now if the cladding hadn't been put on the building, 
and it had been left in the same situational state that it was in the 70s when it had been built, that that fire will never have happened. The building didn't need the cladding. Yeah, at the time of the refurbishment, the reason given for applying the cladding was that it would improve the look of the block, the aesthetics. It would also improve its heating efficiency, keep out the damp. But the inquiry heard evidence that the landlord of the tower, the tenant management organisation, agreed more than £800,000 in savings with a contractor, which involved switching from safer zinc cladding to the aluminium and plastic variety, that allowed the fire to spread so quickly. So we end up with cheap cladding, where you have a local authority sitting down with £274 million in its reserves at the time. I would say this is the power of the title of this play in terms of value engineering, because actually the only thing that was not valued was people's lives. When people complained, for instance, about the gas pipes being run through the stairwell and outside their homes, some of them refused to let the construction workers in. They were then threatened with eviction to say that they weren't fulfilling the terms of their tenancy. So vilified making the complainant a problem. And that is where the chumocracy does come in. Through the play, None of those corporates mention people live in these homes that we're playing with. So people don't feature. Our lives are cheap. If they put on better cladding, those people would still be with us today. £800,000 or less out of £10 million. Hmm. That cost 72 lives. And that is not just adoration. I'm trying to be objective journalists here and looking at the evidence. And it is abundantly clear that this cost-cutting, so-called value engineering, led to this terrible, terrible disaster. And the evidence makes it quite clear that it was completely avoidable. If a little more money had been spent and some of the companies didn't pocket some of the money and try and pocket more and more money, actually, the mind does boggle, actually, the state of the competence, apart from the sort of fraud and the covering up of fire tests of this uh, cladding, the incompetence and ignorance of some of these company executives, that they willingly or unwillingly were pretty clueless about the kind of products that, that they were putting up there. They just sort of passed the buck. They said, it's not, it's not our job. The architect blamed the, the cladding merchant, the cladding merchant blamed the people responsible for regulation and so on and so forth. When the, the chief counsel, Richard Millet, says, I didn't want people to pass the buck, I wanted to avoid a merry-go-round of buck passing. And he said, people ignored my invitation. It, and it's quite clear, they did. They were allowed to pass the buck. Although I have to say, the inquiry must come up with pretty strong recommendations, having heard the evidence uh, probably next year or towards the end of the next year. The other people, of course, who haven't appeared yet is the government and the deregulation. The borough's been in the firing line a bit, and the companies, of course, but not yet the uh, central government. Uh, because of their deregulation, the so-called, well, part of austerity, I suppose. But you think that deregulation and austerity were factors in this? Yeah, they're clear factors. And also increasing outsourcing and privatisation of public services like housing. There's a pattern where once they go into private hands, there is a lack of accountability, there's a lack of duty of care and 72 people pay the ultimate price 
for that at Grenfell. So I think the outsourcing of public services, not having any kind of really clear regulation or accountability around it plays a key part. Who is responsible for the public services that we have? Yvette, you worked for many years for the Mangrove Community Association and people who are too young to remember the story of the Mangrove calf may well have seen the Small Axe series of films directed by Steve McQueen and that told the story of the harassment of the owner of the Mangrove, Frank Critchlow. Steve McQueen also made the film Uprising about a fire that killed 13 black people at a party in New Cross in London in 1981. Do you see parallels between those incidents and this tragedy? Yeah, all the way. It's kind of organised democracy, but the state plays a huge part in that. When I went to the mangrove, I used to deal with housing, you know, exclusions from education, people getting decent homes, people having race cases and employment, etc. And nothing's really changed. People still come to you with those same issues today. I mean, New Cross was the first demonstration I ever went on. And I remember the feeling at that time, they've just got a new petition out in regards to, they think somebody gave a statement, putting their hands up to the fire. The police did nothing with that statement. So they're asking for the case to be reopened, although the case was originally going to be sealed until I think this was 2050 or something like that. In Notting Hill, going back to the 50s, and one of the reasons we grew up in Birmingham is because one of my dad's friends was murdered in a racist attack, Kelso Cochran, in Notting Hill. So you came out of London for that reason? My dad never got over it. You know, we lived with that in the shadows of growing up. So nothing is changing, but what is becoming increasingly easier is how the villains can monopolise on that and almost kind of like keep us in our place and have no duty of care for our lives. And I think we see that most during the lockdown, during the pandemic, where we have workers going out with no equipment. We have to have a footballer who says, could you feed our children, please? We don't have a welfare state anymore. We have a careless state that is ready to kind of just jettison our lives at whim, really without being too party political about it or partisan about it, the evidence is there. And indeed, some of the council people, as one sympathises with one of the building control people, here's a man who is overworked, and uh, he paints quite a good picture. He wants sympathy, of course, but without being too cynical about it, maybe he deserves a bit of sympathy because of the cuts in one of the richest boroughs in Britain. And they treat it, and it's a classism. So it's a classism, it's a racism, but also classism. And it came out during the, the play we did on Stephen Lawrence, The Color of Justice, the patronizing attitude, and how the police then, this is not necessarily relevant particularly to Grenville, but it's there, an undercurrent. The boroughs, like the police, people in authority, we're not racist, it's just that poor people happen to be black or Asian or whatever. It's it's element of that, that the classism, the way that quite posh people in Borough of Kensington and Chelsea can't help themselves patronising discussion about the inhabitants of Grenfell Tower, of which the vast majority were people of colour. And it's, it's manifest. And sometimes because people, when they're well, quite good lawyers questioning them, they don't expect to be uh, having to say things in public, answer questions, which are embarrassing for them, 
but they still can't withhold it. It comes out, almost unconscious, if you like. Racism, classism, poverty, a patronizing approach to all these people, as if that knows, and some of the, the spokesmen, if you like, whose reports were just ignored, whether it's about um, oh, these people, and it comes out as they're stirrers, you know, because they don't talk in the same way or they have a different color. You can just see it, you can see it. Um, when they talk about particular complaints, which are about no sprinklers, if you like, or the bad ventilators or no ventilators, the, the lift shafts, the gas pipe, all that stuff. You can hear it in the tone. So I dismiss it. You know. <laughs> Sorry, it's sounding sort of a bit sort of cliche now, but there are posher parts of Notting Hill with their political friends or whatever, or people who are more articulate in complaining and insistent and confident socially. Then they would jump up and down the borough. But here, no, we can just forget about all this. What is key to this is there was a consultation around the terms of reference for the inquiry, and they have chosen to leave out race and class as issues that need to be explored yeah. as part of the inquiry. The other thing they chose to leave out was the whole social housing piece and at the time made a statement saying it was going to be taken up as a separate project that has never materialised. So the actual key things that impact our life the most, that play such a key role in what happened at Grenfell, they are choosing not to explore. Tell me how you think race and class played into this. Look at the pictures of the 72 who died. Look at the... The, the makeup of those people who were living in Grenfell Tower at the time, the former residents, look at statistics up and down the country. I think the last thing I read is 44% of those that live in tower blocks are likely to be black and brown. You look at the connotations and the stereotyping, and we see this the morning after the fire, about people who do live in social housing, you know, so it was... They're all undocumented migrants, you know, they're benefit scroungers that deserving and undeserving kind of poor. And so therefore they should be treated in a different way. You don't end up with a tower block with residents with that kind of makeup for nothing. You look at the, the mantras going around, you know, refugee and migrant communities coming in and this idea that they should be great eternally for some reason because where they have is better than nothing so that's so stark that you cannot say that race and class does not play a factor in what happened and the fact that it's not being explored means that nothing will be reported on or recommended on or found on so we won't move on society won't move on we've got to face these things where then Yvette, does the quest for justice for Grenfell go next? One of the key things is, especially for bereaved families, justice looks like different things to different people, but definitely for the bereaved families, there has to be something about criminal justice at the end. And we don't want to look at the statistics in the criminal justice system to know that people like those that lived in the tower you know, featuring the worst statistics in that. Government seems to favour inquiries as a particular route, where and when it suits them. Should they even be called public inquiries? Because they're not public inquiries. They're only public because they're open to the public. These are government inquiries. It's a government marking their own homework. 
So even with the Lawrence finding, which we thought was kind of a litmus test and a turning moment, within 10 years, you have CRE, the Commission for Racial Equality, was shut down. The Equality Act was re-amended. They were put together in the Equality and Human Rights Commission. The Equality and Human Rights Commission pushes the issue of race down to the bottom. And do inquiries bring out all the truth? Well, actually, we know the Lawrence Inquiry didn't do that because then they find out a decade later that they were actually being spied on while they were campaigning. Governments favour inquiries where it suits them. Grenfell's criminal investigation has been put back until after the inquiry. They cost a lot of public money. Governments appoint the judges. But at the end of the day, and we see this with the recent Hillsborough verdict, where the judge says they are not a legal entity. Therefore, the government has no legal requirement to take on board public inquiry findings or recommendations. And perhaps if they had done that with Lackanell House, Grenfell perhaps wouldn't have happened. So we're paying a lot of public money and very few, if any, public inquiries find against the government of the day. Where does the, the quest for justice go from here in your view, Richard? I'm slightly more optimistic than event, maybe on this one, partly because of the, the amount of evidence in the public. And it's people like Yvette and me and others maybe to uh, to persist and echo this and repeat the evidence when they think public inquiry is finished. There will be a Metropolitan Police criminal investigate. Well, it's going on now. I mean, I'm astonished if there wasn't some um, criminal prosecution, even though the individuals have been protected, as they have been in other public inquiries, from self-incrimination. So what they say in answer to questions in the inquiry, that can be used against them in future, but other information documentation, which have intra-company outrageous communications uh, in emails between the different companies where they said, you know, joking about lying about safety issues, all that stuff must come out again, um, even though not in particular out of the judge and the public inquiry next year when he announces his conclusions for next year. But uh, there's a legacy of this. It affects also a lot of other people and maybe a, a million tenants around Britain because of Grenfell, because of the lack of safety. People in Manchester and wherever will say, oh, we're in trouble now. You know, serious practical problems because of the outrageous, fraudulent, penny-picking, dangerous activities of companies and, and one of the richest boroughs in Britain in Grenfell. I hope that lessons have been learned. I take Yvette's points about past inquiries and certainly Stephen Lawrence, which I was involved in, and, and of course, the, and the police keeping the uh, evidence they have under wraps. I don't know. I think in this, I'm slightly more op- optimistic about Grenville because of the legacy. Yvette, what difference do you think Richard's play can make to all this? I just think this play has been absolutely brilliant, especially in terms of keeping what happened at Grenfell in the public eye. I think this can be a real moment of change in terms of moving on. The truth is out there. We just need to keep the fight and we have to have some kind of confidence that the rule of law is so essential to any decent democracy that if nobody is prosecuted at the end of this or that we just get a couple of things just shoved through, I think it'd be a sad day for Britain. It'd be the worst time ever. 
Yvette Williams and before that Richard Norton Taylor and we will of course keep you updated on all the significant updates in the Grenfell story at bylinetimes.com. If you want to comment on this podcast, do join the conversation at Byline Times Pod on Twitter, or you can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times Podcast, which is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>